Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guests today are Joseph Serafian, AIA CEO, and Ron Culver, AIA COO, both co-founders of Form Found Design in Los Angeles, California. Joseph and Ron first met in graduate school at UCLA's architecture and urban design program where they invented a method for casting concrete with six-axis robots. I have no clue what that is, that manipulate fabric as an adjustable formwork. They went on to open their architecture practice, Form Found Design, in 2017 in time for their first commission, the Mars Pavilion. Their work has been featured on Dezine in galleries such as the A&D Architecture and Design Museum in Los Angeles, and their office was selected by Arc Daily as one of the best young practices in 2020. Nice. The project we are going to talk about today, can you guess, is the Mars Pavilion in Palm Springs, California. The Mars Pavilion combines the precision of robots and the freedom of fabric to achieve a 15-foot-tall canopy structure for Amazon's invite-only Mars Conference in Palm Springs that includes machine learning, automation, robotics, and space. Aliens, maybe? Industrial robot arms manipulate fabric sleeves, creating an adjustable formwork into which concrete is poured. Thanks to the precision of the robots, no two wishbones are the same in the structure, yet each component fits within 1 16th of an inch tolerance. The structure is designed to be a catenary to ensure that the primary load on each member is compression. 
Helix Twisted Steel Micro Rebar is introduced in lieu of traditional rebar, yielding a 25% increase of compressive, tensile, and flexural strengths for the concrete wishbones. A uniform welded steel connection detail is used throughout, creating a consistent means for assembly. So I read a short bio about the firm at the beginning of this podcast. I didn't get a ton of background on the two of you. Um, So maybe just briefly give me a little background on each one of you. You know, I think Ron and I had very different paths that converged at an interesting time in both of our lives. So it's kind of interesting to hear hear one and then the other. But, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, went to USC here in Southern California, grew up in Los Angeles, you know, studied architecture, had the ability to study abroad in Italy, which really impacted my understanding of history um, and context as it relates to architecture. And then coming out of the profession, entering the professional world, I started working at Synthesis Design and Architecture. Alvin Huang is the principal, and that was really formative for me because we were taking on this portfolio of international projects. And being a small office, I was able to travel to you know to China and Thailand on these uh, site visits and work on competitions internationally. That was a really eye-opening experience for me to be able to see not just the cultural differences, but how different governments operate and and how context means something different depending on what country or region of the world you're in. So that was really formative for me. And one of the first times I was able to use parametric tools to actually get projects built. Parametric design, also known as computational design, is a design method where an object is shaped using a set of rules or parameters. The shape is, in a sense, created without direct influence of a designer, often leading to a more organic form that has become associated with the design process. Today, we use computers to input the parameters and create the form, but it has existed before our digital age, which may provide a clearer explanation. Antony Gaudi, a Spanish architect whose work is famously found throughout Barcelona, use parametric techniques to design the Church of Sagrada Familia. He used strings that were weighed down with birdshot to create an upside-down model. The parameters were length of string, anchor point location, and the weight of the birdshot. He used a mirror below the stringed model to show what the church would look like right side up. And then after debating for a while, I decided to go back to grad school and learn new skills debated between UCLA and the AA and decided, you know, UCLA has Greg Lynn and, you know, he's who I wanted to study under. And um, we started this program and they had access to these industrial robots, robots that had been used to make, you know, auto parts. But there was almost the sense of we have this new technology, but we don't really know what to do with it. We've experimented in different ways. And so when Ron and I met in grad school, we, we both had the same kind of impulse to really push the technology to its limit and see how we could integrate this into the construction industry to solve problems that had existed for millennia. You had me at solve problems, two yeah. of my favorite words on the planet. Ron? It really drives a lot of what we do is that problem solving bent that we have. Uh, I also have a background in in construction, 
and saw a lot of the practical applications of getting things built and recognized the gap that exists between advanced design and fabrication. And I did my undergraduate at SciArc, the Southern California Institute of Architecture, which is often known as an avant-garde, cutting-edge kind of school, which for me was great because of working in construction, you, you tend to go with, we've always done it this way, and I wanted to do it differently. And so I'd run my own design practice and architecture firm for about a decade prior to going back to grad school. And when, it, when Joseph and I started teaming up, we recognized this kindred spirit in terms of trying to innovate, trying to find ways to create something meaningful. Our first work with the robots was playing around with fabric and concrete. And we initially did it off the robots just to sort of get a feel for how the different materials worked. We decided to bring that into our casting techniques and use flexible fabric, spandex or lycra, to determine how we could manipulate formwork, to see if we could create an adjustable formwork that would enable us to realize designs that were there previously unrealizable. And then coupling them with the robots, we could do it with a level of precision that we couldn't do with any other methods. We created a jig of allowing two robots to be able to interact with each other, suspending fabric between them and a third point that we could actually pour concrete into. So essentially we had three points in space, two that were being held by the robots and one that was being fixed. And we also recognized that that fixed point didn't always wind up having to be on top when something was assembled. This was essentially just a point in space from which we could build a space frame, which is frequently made out of metal that has multiple nodes that interconnect to create a structure. It's a very modernist technique. Uh, a lot of people use to express this framework in, in their designs. And so we, we wanted to do something that was tectonic, which in speak means that we express the structure. So this seemed like an opportunity to us. Then we had to try to solve multiple problems to actually get it to happen. We were in a technology seminar with Julia Corner, and kind of the question was, how can we animate the casting process? You know, casting concrete is this ancient technique and it hasn't really evolved. And really the limits of pouring concrete and creating interesting formwork for the concrete hasn't really been explored. We still generally pour it into orthogonal shapes, columns, beams, floor slabs. We're not really pushing the possibilities of the geometry itself. It's this plastic material that can take any form, yet still we make it conform to our rigid kind of geometries that work engineering uh, wise, you know, it's easy to calculate, but we, we said, well, you know, this whole other world, this whole other realm of computational design that isn't being built because there's this disconnect between digital technologies and parametric design and the construction industry to the point where if a contractor gets a design and notices, oh, there's variation throughout a facade, for example, they'll have to charge 10 times what it would cost, <laughs> you know, for that to be the same repeated module. So, you know, we said, what if the contractor didn't have to upcharge for the 
uh, unique aspect of the design. You know, there could be variation without the added cost. So what we really set out to do here is say, can we get rid of that added cost of variation in the design world? Can we create a CAD-CAM pipeline for concrete? CAD-CAM is computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing. So 3D printing, laser cutting, CNC milling, water jet, they all fall into that category of sending something generated by CAD software to a fabrication tool of some kind. We wanted to do that for concrete. So that was where this started. What we were interested in is this new pipeline of kind of simulating something digitally, a highly complex set of lattice structure where each one was different and they all aligned to within a 16th of an inch precision. We can send that to the robots and due to the robots precision, we're able to get concrete to have much higher tolerances than the industry is, is used to. So we were looking at the kind of process of delivery, not just in the product. And then we, we published the work on Dezine. We gave a, a lecture in Australia at the Robotics and Architecture Conference. But returning back from that, we, we got a call from Amazon and they said, we want you to build a small canopy for our invite-only conference in Palm Springs. We said, sure, you know, we'll send you some sketches and began working with them. And they kept saying, no, we want this to be bigger. We want this to be bigger. And so we said, <laughs> oh, great. So the proof of concept that we had built at UCLA was maybe only three feet tall. In the end, Amazon wanted something that was about 15 feet tall. You know, we said, all right, let's find a way to do this. We have to pull in partners. We'll bring in a structural engineer. We'll need robots that are that scale. We partnered with ABB Robotics. We reached out to them and said, we're going to be at a conference where Jeff Bezos and his CEO friends are walking around. We'll be in front of your existing customers and some new ones. So ABB was open to that and said, yeah, we're happy to loan you two robots. Just make sure to send them back in one piece when, <laughs> when you're done with it. And we began work on this on this project that was five times the size of anything we had built in the past, and a very ambitious uh, promise that we made them. And, you know, and I told Ron, "There's no bigger stage to either fail or succeed on, so we have to succeed. There's no way around this." Let's get into more detail on actually designing and building, because I looked at that, and my gut reaction to it was. That's a grown-up space age play structure. Um, <laughs> and people used it as such. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just I, I was I was fascinated with it, and so what drove the design that you ended up with? We were building this out of concrete, and concrete performs its best in compression, and we were also building it out of very slender pieces of concrete, so. We had to do our engineering to the utmost degree. So what we needed to do was optimize the shape to work with thin pieces of concrete in compression. And research has been done on this for a very, very long time. Antonio Gaudi recognized that a catenary structure is the most effective for concrete strength and strength of, of stone or masonry structures. And, and he achieved a catenary in concept by holding a chain from one end and the other end and letting it drape naturally by gravity. And so if you do that, 
then you'll recognize a catenary structure, this almost a parabolic curve in places, but it's, it's not a consistent curve. It's slightly steeper than a semicircle. Then he took that, that shape and turned it upside down so that the curved part is up. And that shape is the strongest in concrete. We kind of took a digital catenary and we, we simulated that using a, a, another animal plugin for uh, the software we use is this time called Kangaroo. So it simulates the, the forces of gravity on a material and we we're able to create this digital catenary. We wanted to make sure that it was being optimized in that sense. So working with Walter P. Moore Engineering, we would send them our file. They would say, okay, make sure it's optimized and you know that you've performed your mesh relaxation on it so that we don't have to do one more layer of you know optimizing i went they wanted us to do the optimizing and then they could just run their simulation so they did a finite element analysis on the catenary shape and were able to kind of treat each component like its own brick and see how it would perform as an overall uh, shell structure in the use of a stretchable uh, fabric or membrane, there is some unpredictability to how the concrete will go towards the form, especially with the type of mix that was developed. It's something you know that could be form found on, on the computer, but it requires kind of a high level of analysis. So it was more of an experimental uh, approach to see how, how will the concrete form itself into this flexible fabric. That's Kaisa Rawi. Senior Associate at Walter P. Moore. Kais helped us dive a little deeper into the structural aspects of the project. There's no building code that tells you how to design structures like this. And so part of this learning process was using high fidelity and high tech tools. So we used finite element analysis where we took the 3D shape and three-dimensionally created a mesh of that that we can assign properties to and analyze. And that then allowed us to figure out what kind of concrete strengths we need in order to not exceed the stresses and, and, and the loads that are on this uh, shape. And so there was kind of a combination of engineering judgment and the use of high-tech tools. And at the same time, you know, uh, some parts were low-tech like the membrane, but then the robots were high-tech. So it's kind of this uh, cool hybrid of different techniques. There were maybe 15 different versions of this model that we came up with just on our own end. One of the pieces of feedback was that they wanted the ends of each concrete wishbone to be wider so that each connection would be more robust, similar to a bone structure. So right. that was uh, one of the things that we implemented in our design of the fabric uh, molds is we needed this kind of belled shape at the end uh, of each wishbone. Another thing they, they did was they introduced um, the product that really made this possible, which is uh, Helix Twisted Steel Micro Rebar. In the simplest of terms, Helix Steel is a product that is added to your concrete mix to make the concrete behave a bit more like steel. But I'll let Luke Pinkerton, president at Helix Steel, explain all that in much more detail. Helix Steel is a technology that is, uh, it's actually an alternative form of reinforcement that's mixed with concrete. And what it was originally designed to do is actually carry load in a similar manner to how rebar carries load in concrete. 
And most of our customers come to us when they're having issues like, you know, they can't find labor or they can't get rebar in a reasonable time. And we're able to, in many cases, eliminate some, if not all, of the traditional rebar that they have on their project with the use of the Helix product, which is um, one inch long twisted metal reinforcement pieces that are mixed into the concrete at the ready mix plant and then delivered on site with the concrete. And they just finish and place the concrete as they normally would. That's really what made this possible. We didn't want to have to bend rebar into unique shapes and add the time for that. So that made this uh, feasible and um, they were on site inspecting our concrete as it was coming off of the robot. We worked with a testing lab in Los Angeles to make sure that we were doing uh, cores to make sure that compression, flexural, and tensile strengths were meeting the requirements that they were setting. One of the other things that we provide to our customers is the engineering service behind it. So there's a whole there's a whole science of testing and quality control that goes into in design that goes into first determining how much of the product you put in to the concrete per cubic yard for a particular application. So something like the Mars canopy would require a different amount of helix than, say, an industrial floor slab. And then there is consideration given to assure that the proper amount of helix gets into the truck. And then there are ways to measure it once it's in the concrete. You can you can take a sample and you can measure it to make sure that it has the proper quantity or the quantity that was specified. But uh, there's been so much, you know, the, the, the idea, the concept of the Mars canopy has launched so much discussion. You know, it forces people to think outside of the box. And as structural engineers in particular, we're trained to think only inside the box. And what FormFound did is really challenge, I think, the industry, at least from our perspective, to you know, get outside of that, that conventional thinking. I ended up a couple of years later, essentially taking the same concrete mix that was used on that or a similar concrete mix and demonstrating for a large industry organization that does tilt up concrete construction, the TCA, that we could erect a tilt panel which is where they, it's a site cast panel that's only four and a half inches thick. Typically they make these things eight or even 12 inches thick and we could erect it in the field with no rebar or fundamentally no rebar in it, only with helix. So I really think that what FormFound did and the way that they were able to kind of cross over into the engineering field, we need to see more of that because you know, engineers are happy to do what they've always done, and they, they, they're, they're generally going to be as conservative as possible. And if there aren't folks like FormFound kind of pushing the envelope, you know, we're not going to see that, you know. And I, I think that the more the design community can kind of push, the better the, the materials industries can, can respond. And, you know, they won't do it if they're not pushed, trust me. How would our industry do if we actually always worked with our consultants that closely and that well? <laughs> I think we'd have way fewer problems. 
you think? And, you know, we found that out with our fabricators too. You know, we it's not a matter of just designing something and then giving it to someone and saying, okay, find a way to build this. It's really, how would you weld that? How would you fabricate that? Is it a water jet? Is it, you know, what's the technique? Because that matters in the, in the product. How many different types of technology as opposed to what I might see in an average architecture firm or whatever, did you have to use to make this happen? It's an interesting question. And sometimes it wasn't just technology, but different forms of products even that we had to search through. We had the whole robotic end, we had the whole digital interface end, and then we had to do the research on the technologies of concrete and reinforcing. And we researched multiple different types of concrete. Just as a, as a baseline, conventional concrete that you'd see in foundations and flat slab work would be about 3,000 PSI. But it doesn't gain its ultimate strength before 28 days. We needed something that would be 10,000 PSI within 30 minutes so that we could remove it from the robots and put another piece on and fabricate the next piece. Because if we couldn't do this quickly, we would be in trouble because we couldn't produce the. We had a deadline. <laughs> and so we investigated all kinds of different rapid setting concrete. And so we started with that premise that it was going to be rapid setting and high strength. We were able to get concrete that was in the realm of 6,000 to 7,000 PSI, 8,000 PSI. And then we investigated other additives. The micro, micro rebar, the micro twisted rebar from Helix was one of them. We tried fiber additives. We, we tried making the concrete lighter so it didn't have to be so strong using pour-over glass beads, but that didn't give us any advantage. It just made it lighter and weaker. We tried plasticizers, which are additives to the concrete that enable it to use less water. You're able to mix it with less water so it becomes plastic in the term being flexible and horrible. And when you add less water to concrete, it has a higher strength. The more water you add, the more weaker it gets. So plasticizers enabled us to, to make the concrete stronger by using less water. And then we use rapid set concrete. That's the name of it, made by C CTS. And we were able to get that up to 12,000 PSI with all of the different additives that we used. So that's one form of technology. Then there's the technology of creating formwork and jigs, a template, as it were, that enables you to reproduce something reliably over and over again. So we spent a lot of time fabricating, revising, creating jigs that would enable us to recreate an accurate pour over and over again, 70 times at least, because that's how many pieces of concrete wound up in the, in the Mars pavilion, with really, really small tolerances. And these pieces are big. Some of them were almost four feet long. You know, in terms of the digital technology, it really wasn't the, uh, the number of technologies, but it was really more just using them in, in ways that they're not really intended, uh, kind of retrofitting the technology for architecture. And I think it begs the question, you know, 
do we do that a lot? You know, I think AutoCAD originally wasn't, you know, designed for architects. There's a lot of technology that we use that's been kind of appropriated for our profession. Uh, you know, in a in a lecture, Peter Eisenman discusses with Greg Lynn, it's, this video is on YouTube. Peter Eisenman asks, you know, which came first? Was it the hammer or the table? You know, did we build a <laughs> table because we happened to have a hammer lying around or did we say, well, we need a table, so we need to build a hammer to achieve that? So that's kind of the question that architects find themselves in now, where we have these six-axis robots. They're not intended for this purpose, but we're still working within their limits, their realm of possibilities to create things that we intend, but we're still retrofitting our design around the capabilities of the tool. Well, there was also one piece of technology that I forgot to mention, which is which is significant. We used a sewing machine. <laughs> uh, that was Seriously? that was one of the most critical pieces of technology here. Every wishbone was sewn together. We printed out templates, uh, sent them off to tailors, and had them sew right through the templates, right around our markings, around the templates, and they sewed it sewed it up and sent them back to us, and we ripped off the paper and filled them with concrete. What better way to make something happen than using things that are already available to you and just using them in a different way with a different maybe lens of, of what you're trying to achieve. I love that. Yeah. Instead of, you know, recreating the wheel, you can re recreate the wheel without recreating the wheel, depending on how, it, whether you're open-minded enough to do something like sew a concrete form. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just can't even picture it. So maybe you can start us off on this one, Joseph. I, I need to know what construction looked like. Like, I mean, were these robots out on the job site working? Were they fabricating pieces in a warehouse somewhere? And then you're taking them out and doing something to put them together? We were able to take over a portion of this warehouse and we were doing our best to, you know, cast outside and as much as possible, but the robots were inside. So it was very much a, a messy job site. We tried to drape the robots in plastic. We were wearing uh, almost full hazmat suits. Uh, my wife was in there pouring concrete with us at times. And we, <laughs> we had, I think, over 20 volunteers come in and help us pour concrete throughout the uh, duration of this. So it was very much a community effort. And we had uh, two fantastic interns that, that worked hard on this with us. Um, Steve Fuchs, who, who worked on this, he brought students from Orange Coast College that came up and helped. So it was very much a collaboration and uh, a very much a community effort. So how did it all come together? So that was something that we did a lot of research on in our early project was how to connect pieces of concrete. And so we early on came up with this idea that we would embed a nut within the end of each piece of concrete that we could connect a bolt to, and then we could bolt it to something. What we wanted to bolt to was another piece of concrete that had the same nut in it. So we came up with this coupler that would enable us to, through gaps in the coupler, put a nut through and connect one piece of concrete and then put a nut, a bolt through, and then a bolt through from the another position to another piece of concrete to connect them. And so initially I had done some, uh, some aluminum casting when I was at doing my undergrad at SciArc 
So I was familiar with the process of aluminum casting. You could come up with a shape, you could give it to the uh, the foundry, and they would do a sand casting. They'd embed it, they'd put it in sand and pull it out and fill the, the void with aluminum. So we could come up with a solid block of aluminum that would create the geometry we wanted. And then we figured we could drill that block out to allow space for the bolts. So I thought this was you know, fairly straightforward approach. We could have some level of accuracy and it would be pretty lightweight. It's aluminum, wouldn't be adding a lot of weight to the structure. Then Joseph went to pick up the first castings. We wanted to see them as they were coming off the line. So we went and got something like 20 castings and we brought them back to the warehouse where we were fabricating this and we stacked them up and they were all just a little different, like up to an eighth of an inch or more different. And our tolerances were a sixteenth of an inch or less. And on that on that same day, we realized we had another problem. So we had cast maybe 15 wishbones of concrete. Then, you know, I'm sitting at the computer and then I realize these 15 wishbones were all based on a previous version of the model. I said we came up with 15 different versions. We were casting these not on the final model, it was maybe on version 13 or something. Oh, no. And oh, so, no. And, and in the end, you know, the geometry was fine. It had been structurally, you know, approved, but it was a different geometry than what we were initially planning to build. And I think we had about a week and a half left until the conference. So it was stressful. I had to step back from the computer, I was stressed out. You know, I talked to Ron about this and he says, wait a minute, we have two problems that we can actually solve with the same solution. We can actually redesign the coupler itself with a new material, let's use steel, and we can redesign it based on this former version of the model that we had so that it fits. So rather than having to recast 15 pieces of concrete, we can use the ones that we've had, we've cast already, and then just redesign the coupler to accommodate them. And that's why Ron is a genius, and that's why we work <laughs> amazingly well together, because he's able to find a way to get things built. And we did. We redesigned the coupler instead of aluminum, which would have had issues corrosion-wise with the concrete. He said, let's use plate steel that's welded together. And uh, we took that to a fabricator in, in Los Angeles. Uh, they're called American Best Engineering. Again, it was a dialogue. The first few couplers they gave back to us were still out of tolerance. And we said, you know, this is steel. We know you guys have the ability to, you know, to design this to be a much higher tolerance. And they said, oh, why don't you tell us you wanted aerospace level precision? <laughs> I said, oh, I didn't know we, we had to say that. So they said, yeah, we'll just build a, a jig and we'll make sure everything is the exact tolerance that you want. And they were perfect. That is a perfect example of, I have always said that if design professionals had a little bit more exposure to construction and how things are actually built, the problem solving during design would be a lot more effective. You know, obviously you can't be an expert in every area, but you can be just dangerous enough to at least ask the right questions. So I've been dying to ask you this question. Um, did you have an architecture firm? How do you both, um, from this experience and from some of the, this technology that you've used, how do you both see that translating into building design and construction? 
going down the road. Do you see yourself after this experience? I don't know. It might have been so stressful that you don't want to do it again anytime soon. But do you see yourself um, using it in other projects you're doing now because of what you learned doing this project? It's a great question. And we had to have the very intentional conversation about, do we want to be robotics experts? Do we want to be concrete experts? And there's a whole, you know, pathway to, you know, being a manufacturer that we saw, you know, as, as a potential, but, you know, we realized we're both architects, we're, you know, both licensed architects in California, and we don't want to have to change our, our nature, you know, to accommodate you know, what we see is success. And for both of us, success is creating a built environment that uplifts people and gives people the ability to live more fulfilling lives. And we see technology and, and design as, as the vehicle to achieve that. So what we've realized is that we're not married to six axis industrial robots, you know, that doesn't have to be a part of our process. What we are interested in is using, like Ron said earlier, we're, we're interested in using whatever technology is most suited for the problem. You know, for us, it's not really about the 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 robot or the machine. It's it's about what we can get out of it as a profession. How is it pushing the envelope of what we can build? So I think that initial question that we asked is, you know, how do we bridge this gap between variation and design, you know, that's just paper architecture versus what's being built. I think we'll always ask that question throughout our, our careers. And, you know, it's kind of the thesis that drives us is that how can we find ways to build new kinds of architecture and challenge this uh, preconceptions? That's, I think, where, where we want to go. I'd love to have an office that has its own, you know, design research line that's continuing to explore technology and, and material science, and then implement that into the built work, into the designs that we do. There's a number of uh, architecture firms that are very much uh, involved in, in fabrication, uh, not just in creating mock-ups alongside the contractor, but in working with fabricators to develop a prototype that can, you know, help solve a problem and help bring costs down when a contractor is looking at, you know, having to, you know, design it their way, maybe more expensive. But if the architect's able to do some handholding and say, well, oh, if this is your only problem in the fabrication, I can automate that or I can unitize that process so that it's uh, more modular. I think, you know, like you said, it, it's really about finding ways to have dialogues with the fabricator and to bring that fabrication in-house as much as possible. Well, I got two final questions for you. Um, what did you learn? What was your biggest, maybe each of you, your one biggest personal lesson learned that you would do differently the next time you took on something like this? I'm not sure you can predict that sort of thing on any project coming up. I, I mean, you do learn lessons, but every project is so different that the lessons you learn on a on one project aren't always applicable on another. And the Mars Pavilion is a very specific kind of project. I would say that, you know, in terms of learning lessons, perhaps outsource tasks as much as possible to the highest quality contractors, the, the highest precision, uh, which is really critical in the Mars Pavilion. You've Finding somebody that, that works in the aerospace industry was critical. 
and develop a reliable method to produce whatever it is you're trying to produce, whether it's the design portion of it or the fabrication portion of it. So we had to think through each process in the Mars Pavilion to how it would actually get fabricated and produced. Like working back from the pavilion is now assembled at the conference, each step along the way backwards, how do we get that to happen? And to digress just a little bit from your question, when we got these pieces to the, to the conference in Palm Springs, we hadn't put any of this together Whoa, you guys are brave. You are so brave. Brave or stupid. It's telling yeah. the line. <laughs> well, it, we're, we're a little bit of risk takers, I guess, in that way. No, really? Uh, I didn't get that at all. I think we put a coupler onto one piece, and that's as far as we got. <laughs> we were focusing on produce, protect, and ship. <laughs> I, I love it, but boy, that's that's a little scary. So, you know, we were trying to think ahead, trying to think ahead, but we couldn't, we didn't have time or the resources to, to assemble and do things like normal people would do. We had to design with incredible precision because we couldn't go backwards. We could only do this once. And so when we got to the conference, we actually spent a day just preparing the platform that this piece, these pieces would sit on because it was on grass. So they had to build us a platform out of stages and then covered in, in wood. And and then we had to mount plates into this platform to hold the pavilion to keep it from shifting or spreading because of the weight. Yeah, so the first, we needed these pieces to, again, fit to within a 16th of an inch. inch. So we had our intern, Andrew, go to you know install the first one. We He then goes to install the second piece. And again, they have to meet perfectly. But not only... Does the second piece miss it by about a foot? It's in the wrong direction. It's you know completely distorted, not even facing the original piece, let alone touching it. And another moment where I had to step back and just breathe. Breathe. <laughs> Our intern then, <laughs> after a few minutes, says, oh, you know what? It's just mislabeled. And he rotates it. And sure enough, it just fits like a glove. And it's perfect tolerance. Oh, God. And so the thing is, I, I knew, because we were measuring the pieces as they came off the robot. So I would measure it in three in the digital file and then measure it as it came off the robot. And so I knew that the shapes were the right size. We just hadn't fit any of them together. But we, we kept going and we... We built about, I think, the first 30 or so on the first day. It was just going like clockwork. Um, one of the lessons we learned in this is design the engineering not only for its final state, but each of its incremental stages of construction, too. We looked at different ways of scaffolding this to hold it upright as we were building it. Um, in the end, it ended up just being these custom uh, metal crutches that we use to kind of support it from collapsing in on itself before the the rest of the dome was complete. But yeah, so assembling it became a very fast process. We, we assembled almost the whole pavilion in two days. The whole third day was spent trying to fit the last piece, kind of the capstone of the dome into its final location what we realized was that the entire structure was kind of caving in on itself. It was kind of creeping just enough so that that top piece just didn't want to fit. So we ended up saying, rethinking it and saying, well, 
treating it like a, the spokes of a bicycle wheel. And what if we loosen all of the pieces around it just enough to fit the top in? And sure enough, we were able to do that. And then it all just bolted together and we tight went back and tightened everything. So that gets back to your question of lessons learned. Designing for tolerance and designing that into the, the process so that the, the person on the job site doesn't have to be as precise as the robot that fabricated it and understanding that errors happen you know there's creep that happens throughout the construction process you know and and just in order to achieve something like that you know maybe add a rubber gasket here and there allow some kind of you know washer to allow rotation at least so i i think there's some things that we we could have done to make our lives a little easier but that's uh, that's a lesson learned for us is, uh, you know, one, trust the process that the design has been measured and remeasured, but also designed for tolerance. So when there is an error that we can pick it up in the field. That's such valuable advice. You know, it's really easy to get lost in that design and not really think about the, the really hard facts of how that's going to come together, regardless of what it is you know, something as intricate and unique and crazy as this, or just a regular building, you know, stepping out of that box for a minute, or or even going out and calling up one of your contractor friends and saying, and I've done this before, I want to come out there, I want you to show me what this looks like. I need to feel it and touch it and understand it, because for me, it's usually just words on a page. And and it, it, it has a whole new meaning when I actually get out there and get to see it come together. Um, so I have a final question for each of you today. Um, what's your world domination statement? Personal or professional, what mark do you hope to leave on this world? I'm going to start with that because because I take exception to the, to the term world domination. Uh, because as architects, we really work to enhance the social fabric and society at large. That's, our, that's one of our overriding goals. If we're going to dominate, maybe we'll do it on an individual level. But how would we want to change the industry? How would we want to? How would we want to be known? And I think that you know, for my part, I think that we would want to be known as innovators. Our mission is exploration, to find a better way to solve some of the the long term problems of design and building and even living in the world. So in that regard. Sometimes the greatest heroes are those that are un, unsung, but create some incredible things along the way that enable people to do better things. Yeah, you know, even even if nobody ever knows about it, we all have, you know, a mark we want to leave. Maybe we don't have it even fully defined. Maybe we have 25 marks we want to leave, and we don't know what all of them are. But, you know, just something that drives you, your passion. How about you, Joseph? You know, there's a lot of companies out there in, in architecture, you know, technologies that they find new technologies to build traditional architecture. They find new ways to make something more efficient that's already being built. We're not really of that mentality. I think we want to use new technology to create new forms of architecture. Um, when I was working for Synthesis Design and Architecture, Alvin Huang would say, you know, we want to be experts in the geometry. And that's true for us, but we also want to be experts in delivering that and creating spaces that uplift people. 
creating architecture that kind of like Frank Erie will say it uplifts humanity and it, it just adds a layer of humanity back into architecture that has really been lost. We're a very developer driven society. And I think there's so many forces that go counter to the, you know, the true profession of architecture that we need to go back and, and whether it means fabricating something ourselves or creating an in-house fabrication shop or, you know, finding a new type of robot to integrate into the process, but find new ways to, to build the architecture that will really push humanity forward. I, I love that. You know, a lot of people just say, you know, buildings, a building, sure, it's prettier, you know, whatever. But I have actually, and I'm not religious at all, but when I was in Italy, I went to St. Peter's and I walked into St. Peter's. And granted, it's a whole different era of architecture. I was moved to tears. I mean, it was the most bizarre experience. I walked in and I was so overcome by the beauty and the power of the space, even not being a religious person, that it moved me. And I do believe our spaces can do that. Of course, we want to be sustainable and we want to be healthy and we want to have tight buildings and all of those things as well. But I do think it can be, for lack of a better term popping in my head, a somewhat religious experience in a space. I know that my space around me has to be a certain way in order to keep me from being too type A, to, to keep me calmer. <laughs> you know, so I, I love I love that motivation to to create new and interesting spaces that actually affect the people that move through them. Yeah. We have such a responsibility. We create this almost subliminal backdrop for the way that society operates and the space. You know, we found this out during the pandemic for the non-architects. We realized, you know, the spaces we're in matter, where we work matters. It impacts our general outlook on life, our mental health. Well, gentlemen, this has been absolutely fantastic so interesting. I learned a lot. I'm going to go back and pour over your pictures right now, but I really appreciate you both being here. Thank you for having us anytime. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.